0: it's sunday night we're in augusta georgia dustin johnson has won the masters and we're breaking it all down while it's fresh this is the drop zone and this is everything we learned this week at the november masters All right, folks, we've got Luke Curtinine and Dylan to chair. two guys who have been on the grounds all week at the Masters. I've been here as well in Augusta, uh, running around town, looking into plenty of other things. Anyway, we're going to give you eight topics and tell you what we learned about each of them this week. I don't know what each of them have prepped on these topics, but hopefully we don't overlap too much. So without further ado, Dylan, what did we learn about Augusta National?
1: We learned that it's a real place. Uh, you know, we learned that the azaleas don't just bloom on command. The, the grass doesn't just grow on its own. It's not going to be perfect in November. The colors can be muted. They can be natural. You know, they didn't go and spray paint amen man corner. Uh, the course can be in imperfect condition. And finally, we learned that the sub air is not magical. It does not cure all. You're
0: listing off all these things. Uh, the sub air was one of mine. Yes, The air systems don't cure all. I think uh, in April, they maybe do. There's a lot more daylight, and there's what? We had 10 hours of golf time from 7.30 to 5.30 every night. Like There wasn't enough time for these subair systems, with the dew points being pretty low, close to the temperatures.
1: Yeah, it's it, part of the myth-making of Augusta, and there is a lot of myth-making about Augusta. But one of the things is, oh, yeah, they can have it in whatever condition they want, with basically 12 hours notice. It's not quite true. Maybe they need 36 hours notice. It's still ridiculous, but you know, we just saw a couple of the limitations of Augusta National.
2: Yeah, there was this whole like opinion that like, oh, get the sub airs going in a few hours. This course will be baked out. Mm -hmm. The greens
0: will be slick. And to be fair, that's what it's always been at the Masters.
2: It's always been that way, but it really doesn't work that way in practice. Like it seems like these sub airs were running sort of constantly for like days at a time Mm -hmm. and we still had players walking off the course saying yeah this thing's like a sponge out there it's really soft so i think it's a very real factor that we need to keep in mind for masters in the future
0: all right luke well uh that was dylan's and mine combined take about Augusta national what did you learn about Augusta national so
2: mine's sort of related but it's slightly better i think (laughs) is that augusta national is better with rough Now, we saw some hairy rough on the course. We saw some hairy rough on the course this week, and all I kept hearing from coaches was that, oh, you know, this rough, it's in my player's head. They Mm. don't know how to deal with it. We saw DJ just set the scoring record. He chunked a shot because of the rough. He was thinking Mm. about it too much. Dustin Johnson was thinking too much about the rough, and he chunked one into the bunker on the second hole. It gets inside your head, and it just sort of adds this, like, patchy, unique layer of defense within Augusta National, I think they need to lean into. I'm not charmed by the idea that there's, can be this course with no rough. I think this is a really unique selling point that is actually kind of screwing with a player's head.
0: I don't think a lot of people are going to agree with you. Like the the course nerds or the, you know, the woke crowd of course design wants less
1: rough. My, My only instinct is that there's nothing unique about a course having rough.
0: Luke, let's move on. What did we learn about Tiger Woods?
1: Well, I committed to the wrong wind.
0: You know, the wind was off the right for uh, the first two guys, and then when I stepped up there, it switched to howling off the left, which in the flag on 11 was howling off the left, and I uh, I didn't commit to the to the wind, and I also got ahead of it and and pushed it too because I was I thought the wind was more off the right mm. and. It was off the left and uh, that just
2: started the problems from there and then from there I hit a lot more shots and uh, had a lot more experiences there in, in Ray's Creek. That Tiger Woods' ability to win is determined less by him and more by other factors. Such as? So like the weather for instance, like I found golf collectively looking Pretty intently at the forecast and saying things like, oh, well, it's going to be warmer, therefore it's good for Tiger's back. I mean, this is Tiger Woods we're talking about. And and Mm. we're sort of factoring in something like the weather as a pretty primary point of concern. Um, I think we're also starting to see the fact that his distance relative to other players coming up, starting to see Rory chase it more, obviously, Bryson, DJ. Tiger Woods is. advantage or disadvantage rather is getting greater sort of every single time he tees it up there. Mm. So that means that he sort of lends himself more to a shopmaker's course. Again, I agree with this. And mine was, we learned that he needs a tough
0: golf course to win. He can't boat race Dustin Johnson and Rory McIlroy and these kids that are, you know, 10 to 15 years younger than him. He's probably the smartest golfer in the world, maybe the smartest golfer that ever lived. He needs to outthink these dudes to level the playing field, like you said, with a distance that he can't quite keep up with and the other things that he can't keep up with age-wise. He needs a tough golf course.
1: Yeah, both really interesting. The distance thing is particularly interesting because it's funny. He can get it out there sometimes but it's like this fairway finder that he hits just goes nowhere. You he know? had a
0: lot of like 280 yard drives this week.
1: Definitely, a whole bunch. Yeah, driver that was flying 265. He had a, a bunch of these little banana slice cuts. So okay. we're finding the fairway most of the time, but a when they don't find the fairway he's way back and even when they do he you know he had 244 into the 5th hole today for his second shot so but then at the same time once he really started grooving it when he was making these finishing birdies he ripped it i think he hit it 319 on the 18th hole which is pretty legit up that hill with a cut so i mean it's still there but but you're totally right i mean My thing was that we didn't necessarily learn anything new about Tiger, but we were reminded of things. We were reminded that when when things are going well, he is actually a great match with Augusta National. Uh, But that was definitely not the case for most of this week.
0: You saw it Thursday.
1: We were definitely reminded that his body is fallible. Uh, We saw plenty of that on Saturday when he had to make a move and he just couldn't because his body wasn't cooperating. And then uh, we were reminded that he makes mistakes now that he probably never really used to make, like on 12 uh, today, making a 10. That just
0: felt fluky.
1: It did feel fluky. Um,
0: Even the first shot felt fluky. The fact that it's a 10 is whatever to me. I don't know if I, I don't see him making a ton of mistakes.
2: Yeah, I don't think he's making a ton of mistakes either, actually. I just think that... He made a 10. He made a 10, first time in his career. Yeah, I mean, he made a 10 because of this weird confluence of events happened for the first time since he turned professional. Like, I'm not going to sit here and, like, relitigate all that. I do think, though, your previous points were sort of... Embodying what I was saying mm-hmm. earlier, that it needs to be a pretty particular set of circumstances yeah. in order for Tiger Woods to win. It needs to be of course he's familiar with. I mean, really, what we're describing here is like a baked out open championship yeah. is sort of like Tiger yeah. Woods' bread and butter. And those are just pretty few and far between. All right,
0: we'll move on. I'll answer this one. What did we learn about Dustin Johnson? I
2: know it's, it's because of how hard you work.
0: I've never had this much trouble gathering myself. (laughs) It's okay. (laughs) Um, On the golf course, I'm pretty good at it. Out here, I'm not. Yeah, yeah, I do. I put in a lot of hard work. I hope you guys get a little sentimental because I chose to go the other direction. Uh, I learned that I think DJ might, in the end, be considered better than Rory McIlroy. Now, when it's all said and done, is that crazy? Maybe. I know both of these guys at the turn of the past year were up for the debate. Who is the best player of the the 2010s decade? And I think we all agreed it was probably Rory with DJ being uh, number two. But is it plausible that DJ bags a couple more majors? And in the end, of like when we all start stacking things up, has eight more tour wins? I think it's very plausible, and I think DJ took a huge step this week.
2: This is literally... Also, what I yes. wrote oh. down. Yes. I uh, definitely think we're on the early end of this movement. I think that, look, we can't sit here and say, based on their equivalent records with Rory being younger and winning more majors, et cetera, et cetera, that, like if everything was to end right now, DJ would be better than Rory. But I actually think DJ is trending in that direction more so than Rory McIlroy. And part of the reason I say this, I'll get to this a little bit later, but his performance in majors is like really quality, (laughs) right? Like, I mean, he he has 11 quality top fives in majors. I mean, and when I say quality top fives, I mean like he's in the thick of contention here. Mm -hmm. In the...
0: Back nine on Sunday, he had a chance
2: to make some plays. Yeah, he has four top twos in majors over the past two years. He's spent more weeks in world number one. He's eight wins since 2017. I mean, we're very much in the midst of a Dustin Johnson peak.
0: Takeover.
2: That doesn't look like it's showing any signs of slowing down. Mm -hmm. Whereas Rory, we've got all these questions circling around him. So I actually think that you're spot on there, Sean. Well,
0: Luke and I continue to agree. Dylan, what did you Mm. learn about Dustin Johnson?
1: So, I mean, I do like the point that you hit on, first of all, that uh, when, when compared to Tiger or maybe someone we'll discuss later in this podcast, the conditions need to be right. With DJ, it just feels like he's the best golfer in the world right now. And if you were just going to draft a player and you didn't know anything about the course, you were going to get dropped into the conditions, the setup, anything, you would take DJ. But what I learned is that Dustin Johnson cares like a lot way about this than, green way jacket. Way more than anyone gave him credit More for than he has let on. Certainly more than we gave him credit for. I mean, it was pretty cool watching him get choked up, watching Austin get choked up on the, on the 18th green there, seeing the moment with him and Paulina. And it's funny, we got a little window into their world. Uh, how often do you see like a primetime broadcast focus for, I don't know, 30 seconds on just like the logistics of how <laughs> of their relationship. two people are going to like meet up after the trophy presentation? That was like, a, it was an intimate look into the life of Dustin Johnson that we have literally have never seen. I
0: don't know if it's fair to imply this, but the fact that he responded this way after winning, after finally winning the green jacket, getting it done it almost implies that he was more heartbroken than he let on when he didn't get it done, when he finished T2 last year and had birdies opportunities down the stretch where he's finished you know, in the top five of the Masters in the past when it's like, DJ, just make a mm. 15-footer yeah. and you'll win the green jacket. I think that is implied. Um, you know, Things change over time, but it might be there.
1: My sense would be, and he, he didn't even use this word, so I'd be curious to ask him about it later, but that he was feeling a real overwhelming sense of relief. Like he's been this great golfer, but everyone for so long has just dogged him about, Oh, why hasn't he performed better in majors? And that has to just pile up little by little, by little, even for him, him, he might not have even realized it. I mean, he even seemed surprised how emotional he was talking to Amanda Balionis afterwards. But, man, that was a special moment.
2: Yeah, I think that, like, to your point, I I, to be, I, really have no idea how much pros actually think about this stuff, right? But it does seem like the vibe that we were getting from DJ is that he feels like he's been doing the right things. He's been winning, right? It's, like, pretty hard to quibble with hmm. his results on a week-in, week-out basis. Yeah. The majors haven't really come, sometimes for pretty weird reasons, sometimes because he's given them away, sometimes because he's just been beat. And I think the fact that he just went out there and just crushed everybody in this field, good players and sort of middling players alike, really is sort of testament to the fact that he's doing the right things.
0: All right, let's move on. Dylan, what did we learn about distance?
2: We learned that distance
1: is not quite everything. And really what we learned is that...
0: (laughs) I can't wait to talk. (laughs) Carry on.
1: We learned that the best way to neutralize distance is with temperature. We were promised a cold, wet, windy November Masters, right? And we generally got we got a warm, still, wet November Masters. But for a moment on Saturday morning, we saw what the golf course would be like when it is chilly and when it is still damp and man, did it play differently. John Rahm was laying up on the 15th hole, an always reachable par 5. So, Give me a cold, damp golf course. I'll show you a golf course that is immune to these, you know, bigger bombers and needs a little more small ball. Maybe the PGA Tour should move to Maine. (laughs) I I would not mind that.
0: Uh, Well, I don't agree with you. What we learned about distance, what I learned is that it's still king. It's always king. It will always be king. We talked about it coming into this week, and we're going to talk about it every damn week until the ball gets rolled back or they do something to the equipment or they do something. But, I mean, we don't have to be sitting there through 36 holes seeing Abe Anser and Cameron Smith and Sung J M and Louis Oosthuizen on the leaderboard and kid ourselves about the fact that these guys are playing their asses off. And then through 54 holes when it's like, can these dudes hang with Dustin Johnson? Through four, ho- through four rounds, they're just not going to be able to. Like, they are playing their butts off to be there in that moment. And you saw Abe Answer have 250 yards into 11 today, and he hits a three-wood down the hill, and it comes up on the front edge of the green, barely got it. Like, I love Abe Answer. He's very, very good, and he's playing his butt-off, best finish probably of his career. But distance just beats them down after time. Like you yeah, but
1: distance is always going to be an advantage. But I mean, Sung J. M. and Cam Smith—they beat everyone in the field that wasn't named Dustin Johnson. They cr- they crushed every other bomber yeah. that played in this yeah. field. Best
2: finishes of their life. And you also have to look at who's around them, like Justin Thomas and and Rory McIlroy and John Rahm. I mean, these aren't short hitters, right? And that's why when I said what we learned about distance. I came at it from a slightly different angle but I say that this is something that will be addressed Mm. by the governing bodies. I think there's this real existential threat to golf and specifically to Augusta National that we were seeing addressed pretty head on today. I mean, Chairman Ridley sort of referred to it, and you had Jack Nicklaus and Gary Player sitting there after hitting the opening tee shot, openly talking about the need to like roll back the ball. <laughs> otherwise, Augusta's going to become obsolete. Getting ready to
1: burn it down. I yeah. think there's a
2: this was 2020 has been a real catalyst for this conversation, and I think it's really opened people's eyes to the fact that yeah, distance is the kingmaker in. In, in, in such a clear and obvious way that the only way we can deal with it is to manage it, which is not what golf's been doing so far.
1: Well, yes. So, But to clarify, I think that that will proportionally disadvantage everyone. You know, that's not, that's not going to make bombers less relevant or less dominant, because I agree that it, one of the biggest advantages you can have is to be able to hit it far and straight. That won't change. But you know, you can still small ball your way around. It's just more difficult.
0: Sure. Luke, what did we learn about Rory McIlroy?
1: Yeah, I mean, just the, I felt more relaxed this week. And, you know, I I was saying to you, sometimes I come here and I'll lose between 10 and 15 pounds during the week just because I'm so, you know, riled up and you're burning so much more energy and it hasn't felt quite like that this week. So I'm probably going home a little heavier than I usually
2: do. (laughs) But I think we've learned That he's becoming a bit of a paper lion. And I say this with love Rory because I want you to to prove me wrong here. Now, I just talked about the quality top fives that DJ sort of has been banking over the past few years and the top twos that he's been banking in the last two years. Now he's got another major in the books too. I could be mistaken here, but I don't think I'm, I don't think Rory's held a lead after a round since he last won in 2014. And I think when you're starting to look at his margins of his game.
0: I think that, I think that checks out. Yeah, I wow. think.
2: And when you start looking at his game, I think the margins, he's actually quite sloppy around the margins. His his wedge game gets off, his putting gets off, he throws in a bad round here, bad round there, and then he sort of is Rory McIlroy and is so quality that he ends up Sort of recovering to a respectable position, but I'm not really here for respectable T7s from Rory McIlroy. <laughs> I want to see Rory McIlroy win majors, like. And I think that this is starting to become a recurring theme here that he needs to starting address. To.
0: He must be driving himself crazy. Like mm. the, <laughs> like you said, the recurring nature of it. I know he has one of the best mindsets in golf. I think he is one of the smartest golfers on the planet, and particularly in professional golf but he must hate himself for not shooting 68 or 69 in the first round. He shot 75, and those six or seven strokes are the difference between him contending and him getting that T5 as some guy runs away with it. He knows that his best golf is right there with Dustin Johnson, but why does he keep shooting 75 in one of these rounds in every major? Why does he open Portrush with a quadruple bogey? Why does he have to play his ass off to shoot 65 at Portrush to try and make the cut. Like, he must be driving himself insane.
1: Yeah, I'm not necessarily going to cover any new ground with this, but I think what I learned is that it's not safe to emotionally invest in Rory. He's he's such a fan (laughs) favorite. He's such a fan favorite, and, and with good reason. He's a very lovable guy. But even today, we saw he got within like six shots of the lead, and everyone was like, oh, here comes Rory. Rory's right in it which is crazy. He's six shots behind Dustin Johnson, who's basically playing bulletproof golf. Uh, I think Rory seems to really struggle to get off to hot starts when he really wants to get off to hot starts. Once he stops caring, it's like he can rip out a 65, 66, like pretty reliably. I mean, I get a little bit of this in my golf game. It's like once I get to three over par, it's like, all right, here we go. Time to play. But, <laughs> but right out of the gate, it can be tough. I mean, this was even true today on Sunday. Yeah, he played well on the front nine, but he also missed a short birdie put on number one. Pard number two, like hit a, hit a pretty forgettable bunker shot because he left it in the bunker. Yep. I mean, it just seems like when he really wants it, he doesn't quite know how to channel that energy.
0: I think that checks out. I'm just glad that before the 20-minute mark, we got Dylan comparing his own game in some fashion to Rory McIlroy. Uh, I'll answer the next one. What did we learn about Bryson DeChambeau?
1: You know, at the end of the day, it, it's okay. You know, I'm just going to go back home and relax, take some time off, and uh, I'm trying to get stronger again. But i got to fix, you know, this dizziness or whatever is going on. So there's numerous times today. I mean, I bladed a shot on eight that I've never – or 16 that I've never done – before and nine, I bladed another shot and chunked a shot on eight. It was it was really, really weird for me. And so just, I just I gotta get get healthy first and, and foremost. And
0: that we he, he probably wasn't totally ready for like the brightest spotlight. Mm. I mean, he got the spotlight this week. He won the last major two months ago. He had two months of build-up. He was testing 48-inch drivers. Every single pro that walked into a press conference was asked, What do you think of Bryson? And that does something to someone. Unless you are a robot, it does something to you. And you know what? Did he seem confident when we talked with him on Monday? He seemed super confident. But lo and behold, by the time Thursday was over with, it was like, that's not the golfer I was talking to. I think he'll probably have learned something this week. I think his team probably learned something this week from what it's like being the favorite. And he'll probably be the favorite of the next Masters. To be fair, he'll probably win in the spring, he'll probably be the favorite, and everyone will will go through this song and dance again, he'll probably be better off for it, but I don't know if he was ready for it this week.
2: It was like a reality check, um, nothing, you know, nothing it got because, real. yeah, it got real, nothing because he did anything wrong, it's because he did so much right, you yeah. know, and then he came in with so much heat that people were just fascinated by the guy and curious about the guy, and that's just a That you need to go through that experience in order to know how to deal with it. But I think that what we learned about Bryson to this point is that the underlying things that he's doing are correct and that they're working. And that his strategy actually works at Augusta. And just because we didn't see Bryson race out People
0: will say he shot two under. Yeah, people will say people will
2: say Bryson shot yeah, people will say Bryson uh Shot, you know, finished 18 shots back. But what they're forgetting is, or what they're doing is they're getting hyper focused on Bryson because he's sort of become the spiritual leader of the bomb and gouge movement. Yes. When really they need to take a step back and realize that Dustin Johnson, who used almost the exact same bomber's blueprint here and set the scoring record. And he was surrounded by a bunch of other bombers, by Rory, by JT, by Ram. you know, who were just pumping drivers. And sure, we can say, oh, well, what about Cam Smith who poked up there? But really, like, that's a red herring for this larger movement that's going on. And I think that... With a with this experience under his belt, uh, I think someone who's going to do something very similar to what Bryson is trying to do is going to end up the victor in April here at the Masters.
1: For sure true, but I think that a key point in that blueprint, especially at Augusta, is you need to hit it far, but you also need to hit it straight. You also need to putt it very well. At Augusta, especially in these conditions, you need really good distance control. I think the biggest difference between Augusta and Wingfoot, where Bryson obviously dominated the field, is that at Wingfoot, you could just run the ball up to the green. You could not do that whatsoever at Augusta. So if you got out of position here, it was pretty tough to get back in position compared to someone that was playing from the fairway. Dustin Johnson basically didn't miss a fairway between Saturday and Sunday. I mean, he, what he missed couple fairways on Sunday, but he really was in play on every single hole. He was giving himself chances. He was allowing himself to play the sort of aggressive, conservative style of golf that Bryson has been favoring. And what I mean by that is bombing it off the tee, playing to essentially safe places on the green, and then just having that house edge every single time. So, yeah, Bryson's strategy definitely works, but actually implementing – this stuff, like whether he puts in a 48 inch driver or not, he's still swinging as hard as he can. It can be hard to optimize that every week. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a big thing we learned. Also, when you don't lead the field in putting, it's going to be a lot tougher (laughs) every time out.
0: Yeah, that checks out. Uh, Dylan, what did we learn about Augusta, Georgia?
1: Oh, we learned it's a lot different without the full master's show in town in Augusta, Georgia. We explored a bunch of corners. Actually, we went to We went to dinner. We found some new places to eat. We went to some old favorites. We didn't wait one time for a table. Uh, There was plenty of space. There's not much of an atmosphere. You know, when we were walking to the course or driving to the course in the morning, there's a lot of just commuters going by. But, you know, outside of the actual boundaries of the Masters, it's sort of just normal Americana and it is radically different than a normal master's week. Yeah.
0: I learned that it's a a delightful Southern town and I learned that there's a lot of people that live here and it's way bigger. And this feels like a way too simplistic, uh, learning, but I mean, these people actually, they enjoyed this week. The people that I talked to were like, you know what? It's kind of nice to not be bombarded by a hundred thousand people that are golf fans that, We have to serve all week long. And and what's tricky is that, you know, that feeling is, is on the flip side of it is the lack of money injected Mm. through the masters this year. And so while this town, uh, was probably enjoying its normalcy, having the masters that they can watch on TV and not have to be catering to a bunch of tourists, so to say, uh, it's, it's a, It was a tricky week for them. I guess that's what I learned.
2: Sort of along these lines, what I learned is I think it's been pretty known that Augusta, Georgia, the town, has been very dependent on the Masters and Augusta National. But what I think we saw this year, not to get too sappy, is that Augusta National is starting to actually pay attention to Augusta, the town.
0: Yeah, and at least make sure that it's publicly known.
2: Yeah, like, yeah. The, to be fair, to make sure it's publicly known. But I do think that they've Almost changed their attitude in this regard a little bit, you know, investing in Payne College, investing in this new downtown area in the Boys and Girls Club. The Boys like, and Girls Club. I agree with you here. Like
0: the the Payne College funding, Augusta National's already had a relationship with that college, and now it's like deepening it, mm. and so it does. It does feel like Augusta National
2: is embracing Augusta. In a very direct way, too, right? Because it was always a slightly indirect. It's like we host this tournament, a bunch of people come to it, mm. you know, and you then benefit that, and you benefit because there's all the spillover that goes into the town. Yep. Whereas now they're making, I mean, direct monetary investment. They're going to their partners over at IBM and AT&T and saying, hey, come with us and invest in Bring this project money. in Augusta, Georgia. Yeah. And I think that, you know... I I, th- I think that's a sign of golf doing exactly the kind of things that golf needs to do, which is broaden the tent and figure out new ways to bring people in.
1: It's time. I mean, it's it's been an interesting yes. juxtaposition for a long time. You know, we've we've read the story a hundred times about, you know, the other Augusta, essentially how Augusta National is radically, radically different than the town that it literally sits in, and I, I mean. I hope that everything that they've talked about comes to fruition, because on the other hand, they're building an exit that will specifically go from the interstate to Augusta National to bypass all these other properties. So, I mean, it's always going to be a tricky interplay. Augusta National can't support the entire city of Augusta. But the fact that they're aware of it and are taking steps to address it. The fact that they'll even talk about it publicly. Yeah. It's a good start.
0: Yeah. I think Fred really is actually, he's kind of catching his stride now as a chairman. Mm -hmm. You know, he had to take the, the relay baton from Billy Payne and kind of has to get into it. You know, the first year you probably can't do anything. The second year you can bring on the Augusta national women's amateur. And now the third year you're doing other things. I think these guys tend to do this for at least a decade. I really like what he's doing. So, Um, Lastly, Luke, what did we learn about something else, the rest of the field, someone else that we haven't talked about?
2: So this is a bit dark for me as a European golf fan. (laughs) But what I learned is that there's not a pipeline for European major winners, at least in sight for me.
0: What do you mean by pipeline?
2: So what I mean by pipeline is that I want to see a continual churn of players sort of Becoming known sure. and then progressing up the ranks to the point where they're winning and then they're competing in bigger events and then they're winning those. But John events. Rahm isn't doing that for you right John now? John Rahm is doing that, to be fair. But John Rahm's also oh. one player yeah, he's and wrong. young. And we just spent the whole podcast talking about all our concerns with Rory McIlroy to the fact that he may even be trending down. And you then you take and you realize these are just two players. Who else are we talking about here? And and this is a very real concern for European golf fans, because remember, in my (laughs) peak golf fan years, Europeans went between 1999 and 2007 without winning a major, right? Mm. That's a huge stretch of time when you're a European golf fan to not have this sort of conveyor belt of talent. You know, we see the guys who should be winning majors now, like Justin Rose and so on. Like, they're sort of nowhere in sight. And then what I... look the
0: last Euro to win a major?
2: The last European to mm. win a major Sergio. was Sergio, I believe. Shane Lowry. Shane oh. Lowry. Yeah, so we had Shane... How quickly we forget. <laughs> Sorry, Shane. So Shane Lowry. But again, like, and then Shane Lowry has sort of returned to his status of whatever he was before the Open, which is solid, be... To be plus European tour player. And it's really concerning to me, especially from a Ryder Cup perspective, that I don't see the ranks being bolstered. Where is our sort of Xander Shoffley type? Yeah. I think I learned that
0: John Rahm is just still not quite ready for the Heat. Ooh. I really, I mean, when we open the week watching live from the Masters, and Rich Lerner does this pretty sappy essay about how John Rahm is maturing. And he's sitting down with John Rahm and he's kind of giving him excuses to explain, you know, how he's gotten to this point and worked through his demons and
1: his attitude. And he's We've seen of, this movie before, Sean.
0: We have. And you know what happened on Saturday? He had a really bad shot, blamed it on a mud ball. It was kind of a topped three wood. Mm. Then tried to to tried to get out of trouble, got into worse trouble, makes a double bogey kind of gives away his tournament right there and what does he do afterwards he gets chippy with the reporters and is like running hot at least you know half an hour probably after his round still and it's like this is the same like TV show we've seen numerous times with John Rahm. and you know what yeah he's 25 right or 26 did he just turn 26 yeah. just turned 26 this week and he is phenomenal. So darn good. Should be the next European major winner. We played a game tonight over under how many majors and we all went over for the guy. Yeah. Like he's there, but is he still contended in a major? Like has he still been under the gun and handled it well? I don't think so. Did he handle it well this week? I don't think so.
1: I want to flip this conversation from the European team. To another team that takes on the Americans in team competition, and that's the international squad. Whoa. Tell me, first, first instinct, how many players from the international team do you think finished in the top 15 today? What's your first thought? Um, All right, three. too long. Eight. <laughs> Eight players from the international team. Let's start in reverse order from a couple <laughs> guys who are T13. Abe answer. Hideki Matsuyama, Mark Leishman. We, you got Corey Connors, did you have any idea he finished in the top 10? Probably not. I forgot
0: that he was Canadian.
1: CT Pan, Dylan Fratelli, and then Sung J M and Cam Smith. Now we've we've known about Sung J M because he's been an absolute stud the last year, but Cameron Smith is re-emerging as, you know, kind of a potential cult hero. He had a, a little semi-mullet going this week, <laughs> a, a weird blonde mustache. <laughs> I think that there's serious potential for this guy to be a badass. And it's just good to see the President's Cup international side throwing down a little moxie at the Masters. Sure,
0: a little moxie. I mean, the next President's Cup is a long time from now. Uh, Two years from now? Yeah. (laughs) Two years from, like, this coming week. So, uh, yeah. I mean, you know what? That's a great little highlight, Dylan. It doesn't really
2: mean that much, but it's fun to see.
1: I'm not going to disagree with you. But what
2: I will say to Dylan's point is that, like, I don't think the international. To see from the I don't think the international team actually has this problem of like churning up players. Granted, because they're pulling from a <laughs> wider net,
1: <laughs> the right? Rest of well, the their rest problem of the is world. that they're they're just not very good. But I think that they have a base problem. But, but if you were to take a, con-
2: a golf-loving country like Australia or uh, you know Cam Smith's Australia or South Africa. They're generally pretty good at Mm. feeding good young players into the the PGA Tour. Like Dylan Fratelli is a pretty good Mm. recent example, right? Cam Smith is a good recent example. Um, And it just makes me more alarmed. This is going to dark territory. We started
0: with such great energy, and now Luke has talked about Europeans and the future demise of the European Ryder Cup team, and it's gotten quite somber.
1: Oh, dear. Uh,
0: But gentlemen... Thank you. That's good enough for this episode of The Drop Zone. It's time for bed here in Augusta. There's a dog barking in the background. We will be back to our regularly scheduled programming one week from now. See you then.